Hey everyone, I'm Michael Whistler, and I sincerely believe that science fiction can help us save the world. On this episode of Exploring Tomorrow, I'm going to be chatting with Cheryl Vint, and she's going to basically give us the State of the Union of Science Fiction address or something along those lines. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but we're going to have a great conversation about her new book uh, called Science Fiction uh, that's part of the MIT Press Essential Knowledge uh, series. This is Exploring Tomorrow. On this episode, uh, I'm welcoming Cheryl Vint, uh, and she is a professor at the University of California, Riverside, and also an author of several books. Uh, her most recent book is uh, this one right here, Science Fiction. I like a very simple title, but it's part of the MIT Press Essential Knowledge series, and not a big, intimidating, thick book. I love that the back of it has just a simple one-sentence summary <laughs> of of saying you know what is science fiction so how how is science fiction or how science fiction has been a tool for understanding and living through a rapid technological change and that like grabbed my attention uh popped up i think uh, as an ad on my news feed in like facebook or something and i was like that seems up my alley so i grabbed a copy of it uh and read through it very quickly a highly enjoyable, very readable book. And uh, and then I thought, hey, maybe, uh, Cheryl, we could have a conversation and I could pick your brain a little bit about this. So thank you so much for agreeing to do this and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for inviting me. And yeah, having, having conversations about why science fiction is important is one of my favorite things to do. So I look forward to our conversation. Excellent. Well, you're you're in good territory because that's uh, that's all this podcast is about. <laughs> it's all I ever do is talk about on this about why science fiction matters, how it can help us build a better world, and and how we can be more thoughtful with our engagement with science fiction, both as uh, consumers and as people who create science fiction, as I like to do as well. Um, so what what I often like to how to get into this a little bit is I love hearing from people about how they got into science fiction. Was there a moment for you? Was there a book or a movie? Was there something that lit that fire for you? There is, but it's a pretty non-typical story. So I don't think I'm your, I'm your usual science fiction fan. Although I will say I have um, really fond memories of reading Teen Titans comics in my youth. And then I was also a huge fan of Star Trek The Next Generation when I was in high school. So I do have some geeky past, but um, I, I wasn't necessarily thinking of myself as someone um, for whom all science fiction was of interest to me until I went to graduate school, actually. And for me, it all started with a course I took about sort of um, feminist theories of the body that I was asking all these questions I thought were really cool about like, what's the relationship between body and mind and, you know, how much of your body can you augment or change and it's still you or it's still your body. And so I completely revised everything I wanted to study for my PhD and came up with this like completely abstract philosophical proposal for my committee of what my PhD was going to be about. 
And they very sweetly said, um, you know, that's interesting, but this is an English department. You kind of need some books to, to talk about. And so as it turns out, the books that were talking about the questions I was really excited to think about were science fiction books. And then I read Gwyneth Jones and we went on from there. <laughs> that's excellent. Yeah, that is a, a fascinating venue into it. Um, that's because it sort of speaks to uh, some of the philosophical aspects of the the genre, just the fact that that's what drew you into it. So that's really it is quite fascinating. And so from there, uh, did you imagine that you would be because uh, you've written a few books about science fiction? You teach about science fiction, and um, did you imagine that that was it was going to become such a part of your academic <laughs> and lived reality? <laughs> I mean, not really at first, not that I wouldn't have wanted it to be, but, um, you know, when I, I got my PhD in 2000 and you weren't sort of going to find a lot of job postings in science fiction in 2000, although you do find them now, actually. Um, so, uh, and, and I think like some of the most exciting things that have happened in the genre have been over that last 20 years. So I don't mean it's only academe that's driving that, but I just think people have increasingly come to recognize what an important storytelling genre it is. So I certainly knew that I wanted to ask these like philosophical kinds of questions throughout my career. So, I mean, the first book I wrote was about embodiment, unsurprisingly, since that was my, what my PhD was about. And then I got interested in sort of questions of like, what's the binary between human and animals and what does that mean culturally? So I wrote a book about that. I just recently finished a book that's going to come out in October about biotechnologies. Um, and again, thinking of like how biotechnology is changing us, what it means for the world. Um, so, I mean, every time, every time I have a new sort of intellectual interest, I guess, science fiction is there to have some stories about whatever it is that I'm interested in unpacking and thinking about. And so, um, and then I got hired at the University of Riverside um, in 2012, and that was specifically to be part of a research cluster that was building a program in science fiction. And so now I get to do like all science fiction all the time. I get to teach courses on television. It's, uh, you know, it's pretty much like in my wildest dreams, I wouldn't have uh, imagined that I'd be able to do the cool things that I get to do for a living now. Oh, seriously. I'm jealous. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I also have to go to a lot of like budget and committee meetings. So it's not all, it's not all, but. Well, sure. Right. Yeah. It has to be some trade off somewhere. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's, I mean, it's great to teach science fiction because um, for one thing, I mean, students often will have encountered Hollywood versions of science fiction. So they have an, an interest in it anyways, but also, I mean, it can just open you up to talking with them about, you know, borders and immigration and migration or about climate change or about robots and automation and the future of work. Um, I mean, just so many things that really do touch on their lives and the futures they're preparing themselves for while they're college students. Science fiction offers a way into talking about those issues. So I love um, the classes I'm able to teach on science fiction. Yeah. Yeah. And you're talking about how all the areas that you w wanted to explore and finding that science fiction had already uh, touched on it. 
uh, speaks again to the just the way the genre tends to look ahead, and and makes just makes me think of the the South Park joke about the Simpsons, where they're always just like Simpsons did it, Simpsons did it, and this is like science fiction did it, science fiction did it, <laughs> like it was already there, already there, and and often like so surprisingly early, right? Like by the time people start to think like, oh, maybe this is the thing you realize like, oh, we've been having this conversation for 20 years or 20 plus years in science fiction. So, yeah. Yeah. Sort of the way that like, oh, you know, pop culture finally is getting around to like dealing with postmodernism. And it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the philosophers <laughs> have worked that out like a couple hundred years ago at the latest. <laughs> yeah. Like fragmented realities. Like, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, that's one of the things that I certainly find fascinating about science fiction is that philosophical side uh, that it seems like a genre that's uniquely equipped to just be wide open to asking those like fundamental questions, uh, but also to uh, get into where we're headed uh, and uh, the kind of world that we're building. Uh, which which uh, kind of touches on some of the things that you brought up in in your book, um, and this is a really fascinating read just because it gives a nice overview of where the genre is today, a little bit of where it's come from, but an o overview really of where the genre is today and like what the possibilities are for the genre going forward. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about what brought this project together? Um, like how did you end up writing this book for MIT Press and and what specific objectives you had in creating uh, this book? Yeah, sure. Um, so I ended up writing this book for MIT Press largely because they asked me if I would write a book on science fiction for their essential knowledge series. Um, and so I checked out the series and then I was really excited to be able to say yes, because I think it's a great series. I think this idea of um, distilling the kind of essence of, um, of complex and multifarious um, uh, academic conversations in a way that allows sort of entry points into them for people who haven't always been in the academy where we maybe spend so much time talking about these, we think it's, um, and we take for granted a certain body of knowledge, which is not always um, outside of the academy. So I think the idea for the series is fantastic. And then in terms of this book in particular, because as you touched on, it's really tilted towards um, recent science fiction. Uh, and it's also tilted towards science fiction that engages with science and technology, because of course there's really important traditions of um, science fiction that's engaging with like social issues um, like um, sexuality and gender or there's science fiction that's engaging with colonial histories and decolonization. And I touch a little bit on those things, but um, given that the book was being published by MIT and they have a, um, a particular interest in thinking about how science and technology are having an impact on the world. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but they were publishing um, those 12 Tomorrows collections where they would get um, um, 12, as, as one the title implies, science fiction writers to um, all imagine like the near future of a certain kind of um, innovation or technology or, or something like that. So they were already sort of moving in that direction of being really interested in science fiction, which is, I think, why they then asked me to write this book. But I also think it's it's exciting for the field of science fiction or science fiction studies 
that um, MIT did want a book on science fiction in this series, right? Like that's a recognition that it is a body of knowledge that's being utilized to think about contemporary um, social and political and technological problems. So that's sort of why it tends a little bit towards the science. That's why it tends a little bit towards the contemporary. I've written other things that are more um, historical in their scope. Um, and so certainly this is not a book that's like everything there is to know about science fiction. It's not the State of the Union. It's a very like brief trip through um, a certain way of, of thinking about science fiction as um, as a way of thinking really as much as as a genre. And so I think that's really the intervention, if any, the book is seeking to make is to like reorient how we think of science fiction as not um, only a sort of storytelling format, although of course it is that and 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 we're very happy that it is that because we like those stories, but then also that it is this way of framing um, how we think about the future, how we ask questions of the world, how we want to think about our actions today and the futures that they're bringing into being. So that's, that's sort of what the book's trying to do. Yeah. And it's, uh, and that, that's, that's plenty. <laughs> I mean, that's cause that's a big, that's a big undertaking in and of itself. I was not familiar with that. The 12 futures. I'm going to have to look into 12 that. Tomorrow's. It does, 12, oh, 12 tomorrow's. tomorrow's. Yes. Thank yeah, you. You got to get the alliteration in there. <laughs> yeah. Oh yes, of course. Yes. 12 tomorrow's. Um, but yeah, that does sound fascinating. And it is telling that an institution like MIT, uh, you didn't have to convince them or you, you know, it wasn't like, it doesn't sound like anybody was like push, pushing down or knocking down the doors and, and pushing this on them and saying you have to like talk about science fiction. It sounds much more like acknowledgement from, from a pretty significant academic institution saying that this is uh, an important topic. Uh, worth discussing, worth having an expert write uh, a knowledgeable, readable document for us. Yeah. And I, I mean, another thing that sort of informs the shape of the book is thinking about how so many, I mean, there, there is a field called science fiction studies. I'm part of it. We do like analyses of science fiction texts, whether they're print or whatever, um, in film, television, increasingly um, people working in video games and new media. But there's also people like in design that are interested in science fiction, in ideas of prototyping that are interested in science fiction. Um, people are engaging with science fiction as a sort of um, imaginative practice related to activism. So that's in part also what the book was sort of wanting to highlight is that it's not just about people sitting by themselves reading books or watching movies, but there's these like real world engagements with this way of thinking and framing and, and imagining. Yes. Yeah. And I, you, you have to talk about design. I think that's, that's gotta be my favorite chapter in the book uh, is the chapter uh, that you wrote on uh, futurology and speculative design. Uh, really fascinating. And, and maybe I'm just uh it just hit me at the right time because right now work has me going through a, a pretty high level, uh, well, re very reputable uh, design management training program. It's like months long. And so as a team lead for my 
documentary crew. I'm going through this thing and learning a lot about design thinking and uh, what goes into that and hearing from other people who I would say are actually designers. <laughs> Though I've come yeah. to understand, no, as a storyteller, I am designing and doing story design. I just never thought of it that way until I was put into that position. Uh, and then so reading this chapter, it really jumped out at me because of that idea of thinking of, uh, of how do we design our future in a lot of ways and and the experiences we have. And there was, a, if you don't mind, I'm gonna, I was going to read a, a quick quote out of here from page 53. Um, that really just spoke to like, ah, this is, for me at least, is why I'm so drawn to the genre as a powerful means to sort of run simulations or build models of the future. Uh, you write in here that speculative uh, projections through SF narrative prepare us for the future, enabling us to experience aspects of new technologies or new social engagements vicariously in narratives so that we are ready to engage them in practice. And that like, I was like, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I love about this genre. <laughs> Do you find that um, it's hard to convince people of that particular value of running that kind of speculative simulation of the future that, that, it, that it actually prepares us? No, I don't think it's necessarily hard to convince people of that. I think where, for me, the difficulty lies is for me, that sort of mandates that we think really critically about design, right? And that maybe we like run the scenario to find out like maybe we shouldn't be prepared to readily embrace these technologies as, for example, like some aspects of algorithm driven social media have taught us that, you know, if you like, you know, let the experiment run for enough years, um, what you end up with is a, like a polarized political environment. And so I'm sure there were no sort of like evil engineers being like, how can we break democracy? <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's design a technology to do that. But if you think through, um, and this is why I love science fiction, it's not only like, how can we design this? How can we make it work? How can we make it like cute and interactive so people want to use it? But also like, okay, and then what does the world look like? with this technology in it. Who uses it, but who doesn't get a chance to use it? And what does that mean for them if they don't get a chance to use it? Or what things do people do now they might stop doing if they're suddenly negotiating everything through app interfaces? And is, is that good? Maybe it is, but also like maybe, maybe it's not in certain ways and we should think about that. And because science fiction needs to build a whole like world in which its story happens because it can't just sort of copy the the quotidian world because the whole point is the world's supposed to be different right so it has to think about like okay so so i mean not all science fiction does this well some science fiction is just not good um and so i would call it like not as good a science fiction example of science fiction oh, sure. but the science right. fiction that's good thinks really rigorously about these questions and so some of the very things we see, um, you know, uh, people who are studying science and technology. Um, so, for instance, some of the research that's happening around um, sort of implicit bias in some of the algorithms like the um, uh, resume sorting uh, um, oh, yeah. app that discounted you based on being a woman right. or 
facial recognition um, uh, tracking things that, that don't recognize um, non-white faces as faces or chat box that in something like 16 hours start like spouting Nazi propaganda. Um, oh, no. that these, are, these are things that um, world building around technology and thinking not only in a sort of product driven way about like, how can we make this for the people that will use it and how can we make money on it? But also thinking like, and then what does the world look like with that technology in it? I think that's where science fiction as a storytelling practice has the edge on um, already existing design practices that, that do use speculative thinking, but because, um, and understandably, they're focused on the product rather than on world building, they can miss things that I think science fiction is really good at highlighting. Right. Yeah. It, it in that sense, reminds me of uh, s system thinking in, in a sense. That yeah. Stepping absolutely. back and looking at what's the impact across an entire society or an entire world or an entire solar system or whatever, uh, which is very different um, than what most of us do day to day if we're involved with with creating new products, new assets or new services uh, and, and not always stepping back and thinking, but what's the whole system? What happens down the road if we're creating this? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's also like, as your comments alluded, uh, it's also a question of scale, right? Like this is another thing that I love about science fiction is it can think beyond human lifespans. So it can think in the hundreds of years or even in the thousands of years. Um, whereas um, product design does not think, and I mean, again, rightfully so, does not think in those kinds of terms, but sometimes to fully sort of understand how, a certain innovation can um, radically change all social relations around it. You have to think like, what does it look like in a hundred years? Not what does it look like in five months, you know? Right. Yeah. Which is a harder, a harder lens to put on yes. uh, because it, we don't get the, the same level of feedback on that information. <laughs> well, of course. And I mean, and not to say, um, science fiction, like that's its job is to like predict the products of the future or anything. I mean, very often it, the futures it imagines are completely wrong because one of the sort of, you know, adages that even if it's set in the future, science fiction is always about the present in which it's written. Right. Right. But it's, mm -hmm. it is about that present with an eye towards the trajectory that it's on. Right. And so, um, even if it's totally wrong, um, like if you think back to cyberpunk, which I know cyberpunk's having a bit of a, a new celebrity, um, although now that everyone hated cyberpunk 2077, maybe they're over it. But for a while, a lot of people wanted to have cyberpunk conversations. Mm. And I mean, cyberpunk, because people were asking me in interviews, like, do we live in a cyberpunk world? Do we live in a cyberpunk world? I mean, in some ways, we do right like we interact with devices all the time and there's like a lot of things cyberpunk was on the right sort of trail of where personal computing was leading but it certainly wasn't thinking of like um all this monetization of things there's not a lot of cyberpunk about like dating apps and catfishing and things like that like there's just stuff you can anticipate um but 
science fiction writers do think more holistically about how these technologies change culture in the sense of like what it means for how we think about families or what it means for how we think about gender or what it means for wealth distribution. And, and I mean, cyberpunk was pretty much on the money with that one of imagining mm -hmm. a future of more and more elites and more and more poverty surrounding them. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I was just reading something recently, even speaking of like distribution of wealth and, and science fiction, imagining that, uh, uh, something that alluded to uh, Robert Heinlein uh, being one of the first to introduce this idea of a universal basic income, and just like okay, you know, and it's fascinating <laughs> given given Heinlein's sort of more conservative politics, but it's just like wow, that so that's uh, that's kind of introduced it somewhere along the lines there, which is uh, its own sort of argument or discussion that we're you know, still in the very early stages of even having as a society, but it has cropped up in, in various science fiction stories for a while. Yeah, that's actually my current research project is on sort of intersections of economics and science fiction. So I'm thinking through a lot of these things and sort of thinking about financialization and sort of speculative economies, speculative fiction, those kinds of things. Um, uh, and I think since the 2007 and eight crash, a lot of mainstream culture has become interested in economics. Like you never used to find movies about economics. And now you have like the big short, which is like one of my favorite films it's amazing. Or, <laughs> or shows like succession. And I mean, that wasn't a thing, you know, people had before then, but science fiction has often thought about economic systems, right? Like go back to Asimov and foundation and the sort of planned economy and Apple plus is going to, do a version of foundation. So I guess we'll see what that looks like in a 21st century um, imaginary. Yeah, we'll see. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's back to that. Yeah, science fiction has sort of tread this territory uh, ahead of us. And, I, and I like what you're saying about the, it's not always, you know, the prediction side of it isn't always about the specifics, which is something I get into talking with people sometimes. It's like, oh, you know, it's not always all about like, yeah, Star Trek predicted cell phones or something yeah. like that, like specific devices. Then you look back at like, well, where's my hoverboard from Back to the Future? <laughs> What's my flying car, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, you got to look at the bigger things. Sometimes, you know, science fiction writers and filmmakers are just having fun with some of those ideas. And well, wouldn't it be cool if we had flying cars? Um, and they, you know, run with it. Uh, but then there's sort of, bigger questions about how our society is evolving and developing uh, and sort of the baggage we have. And you kind of touch on that in the book too, and talking about uh, science fiction and colonialism and post-colonial uh, science fiction, uh, which is its own like interesting can of worms that that's evolving and, and shifting. Um, what, is the biggest shift that you see happening in uh, science fiction uh, right now, uh, just from your perspective as somebody who's really taking it all in? <laughs> We're trying to. I mean, yeah. so, I mean, one of, I mean, part of that is like, it's exploded in terms of the number of things that are being published. So I do try to take it all in, but it's becoming like, an increasingly futile attempt to 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 try to read everything, but I do try. 
So, I mean, I think um, science fiction over the last 20 years has um, transformed in really exciting ways. Um, and two things I'd point to that are sort of related to one another. So it's a bit of like, which, which comes first. Um, but I mean, they basically boil down to more diversity of voices in the field. So more diversity of voices, both in terms of um, the Anglophone tradition, people from a wider range of um, cultural and ethnic backgrounds are increasingly writing science fiction. And because, of course, one's relationship to histories of colonialism and histories of technology's role in colonialism, or we don't even have to talk about history, like the reality of how technology is being deployed today to reinforce things differentially based on um, different um, cultural histories and ethnic histories. So you have a different relationship to how you think about science, technology, the future, what the good society looks like. So the diversity of voices means um, we also have different kinds of stories being told, stories from perspectives that um, were um, unimaginable from a sort of more narrow group of largely white male writers that dominated in the 40s and 50s. I mean, they certainly were not the only people, but they are are the ones that were writing back then, but they are the ones who have been kind of canonized as the um, golden age um, and the most influential and things like that. So, and then at the same time, it's also diversity in the number of countries, like India, all kinds of people are writing really interesting science fiction from India. There's been, um, you know, from the Middle East, people have started to talk about Gulf futurisms, or there's science fiction, there's great science fiction being written by indigenous people, and um, uh, of, of all over the world. Um, and so when you get more countries writing as well, then again, you have more histories coming to play. China, China is building, I mean, I can barely keep on top of how many new science fiction programs they're launching in China wow. uh, because yeah. they're um, taking the genre very seriously. And so with those different histories and different backgrounds, you get new stories, but you also get a broader sense of like what counts as science or what we imagine technology to be there to do, right? And so I think in the Anglophone West, there's been a real emphasis on sort of a, a, a capitalist narrative of like progress and um, more and more accumulation, automation, wealth, urbanization, things like that. Um, and we certainly have seen the dystopian side of that um, emerge uh, alongside the narrative of progress. But people writing from other cultural traditions or other locations in the globe don't always understand um, technology in the future through those narratives. And so you just get such a wider um, range of ways to think about the future uh, and to the benefit of us all, I would say. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed because it's so uh, different than my experiences, I've enjoyed uh getting into uh, Nnedi Okorafor. Yes, uh, absolutely. Binti trilogy and, and other Afrofuturism uh, stories like that. Uh, it's been something that has been of particular interest for me. Uh, I, I actually grew up in South America. So oh, wow. I have I have this sort of uh, multicultural background myself of being from born in, and raised in Brazil, uh, son of American parents, uh, 
there for, you know, until I was like 14 or so. So, you know, I fell in love with science fiction while I was there. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that experience of reading or seeing science fiction primarily through an American lens, but then being surrounded by a different culture, uh, yeah. it was an interesting uh, way to, to sort of confront it and, and have to think about it a little bit. And so I'm really excited that more voices are coming to the table. Yeah, and, and I mean, there is a long um, tradition um, from the 19th century as well of speculative fiction writing from Latin America. So, um, and uh, there's an academic critic, uh, M. Elizabeth Jinwei, who's written two books on Brazilian science fiction. Ooh. So perhaps uh, you have a future guest for I, your show. I got to check that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah I can that's... definitely put you in touch. <laughs> yeah, that would be wonderful. Yeah, I appreciate that. And that would be something I'd really enjoy checking out, the, her books. And yeah, that would be great. Yeah, because, you know, that that is something that, I think it's fascinating how the genre is shifting. You know, I I just uh, recently finished reading um, Alec uh, Navala Lee's uh, book, Astounding, uh, which is sort of a history of, of sort of that early, that golden age. And he's going to be on the show uh, later this month uh, for us to chat about that as well. And one of the things that is interesting to me was that, yeah, it was white male dominated in that period and we still we call it the golden age it is it right i think i'm gonna have to ask alec this too like is it right to still call that the golden age of science well, I fiction mean, uh to a degree they were sort of self-nominated as the golden age so um when one can leave that question open but i mean it certainly was a extremely influential moment um the sort of consolidation of a group of people around the magazines in the 30s into the 40s and then the emergence of the paperback market in the 50s um it built an audience and it built an identity that sort of shaped the way science fiction became understood as a distinct not only um sort of genre formation but also like um cultural space because fandom um, came out of that magazines. And while I have my critiques of um, particularly some of John W. Campbell's editorial policies and, and uh, restrictions, um, I don't mean to entirely dismiss all the fiction that came out of that period. And I also think incredibly important from that period was the fact that they were, um, which I find kind of astonishing in this day and age, but they were like, writing their addresses in the uh, when they published letters in the columns and then people would drive across the country and visit people that they knew only through like they didn't even like you know chat with them beforehand all they had were like handwritten letters and a shared magazine and so that idea that a genre that you're imaginatively invested in could be a way of finding like-minded people and build community around them and then the sort of fandom structures and fan practices and fan fiction practices and all the rest that flowed out of that. I think all of that is an incredibly important history about sort of participatory culture overall. Now, again, they had some narrow ideas sometimes about who could be in that community, which probably meant like I couldn't be, for example. And, um, and so I think to call it a certain golden age in a historical sense, I would still agree with that. 
but for a while, including when I first started writing as a critic of science fiction, so when I was really young, not even an assistant professor, I didn't even have a job yet. Um, I remember a very senior scholar at the time who worked a lot in this sort of suggesting to me that I couldn't publish anything until I'd spent enough time like reading all this golden age fiction because you know if I wanted to write about like William Gibson or something I didn't know enough unless I read all this golden age um which I took a little bit of a front to at the time but um even more so now I think with all this diversity we were just talking about the sense that people that all science fiction emerges from that one wellspring is just completely false right people right are coming from all kinds of other influences and storytelling traditions and writers they admire to come to science fiction. And so they're not a golden age anymore in the sense that they once were, that they were like touchstones for everybody in the field. Like that institutional formation has dissolved and uh, and to the good, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, even going back and like reading uh, some of the, the golden age science fiction, uh, you know, it can be kind of confronting uh, as <laughs> our society has changed. And then you uh, find the way, uh, you know, everything from just specific word choices to just subtext. And, uh, you know, it's like, oh, this is pretty blatantly misogynist. <laughs> yeah, not the biggest fan of Heinlein, for example. Um, I've had many arguments with people about that. I can't, I can't deny he has a place in SF's history, but I'm all for minimizing his place in its future. <laughs> <laughs> uh, completely, completely understandable. Um, yeah, no, it makes makes sense. As much as I enjoy Stranger in a Strange Land and uh, have spacesuit will travel and, and things like that. Uh, yeah, there. I mean, I think with a lot of these authors, you know, Asimov as a sort of problematic history as well, just as a person. Yeah, <laughs> not indeed. exactly. Not exactly a uh, like someone I would want to uphold as my sort of role model in life. Um, no. <laughs> some interesting books in there. Uh, wrote a lot. Certainly not the kind of father I want to be. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> uh, but it is fascinating to, uh, to see this um, shift happening. Um, what do you think contributed most? I know because it was like, for the rise of science fiction, you know, the, the, that particular moment in culture, what was happening technologically, um, and then paperbacks, as you said, all of that kind of came together and helped. What do you think has helped diversify the voices in science fiction today? So, I mean, part of it is just... Um shifts in culture overall, including an, an increasingly diverse North American society. So it's not only science fiction that's become more diverse than it used to be. So um, it's sort of along for the general ride. But I also think the sort of in, the degree to which science and technology are so much part of our daily life and have an impact on us in the mainstream. Like if you go back and look at um, Amazing Stories and Gernsback's first columns, he's like, this is a new sort of story. Like fiction can be about science. And that's like a revolutionary idea, right? Because like science and fiction are supposed to be in really separate categories. And the fiction is the kind of higher category, right? And science is kind of rubbing and getting your hands dirty. Whereas 
fiction is about like, you know, having erudite knowledge and knowing the classics and, and that kind of high literary ideas. And he's like, you know, we can tell stories about technology and about the future. And they're not always great stories from literary standards. <laughs> I, I will concede that. But it really does sort of, um, it, he imagines a sort of distinctive subgroup of readers who are going to be excited by that because he knows for most people, this is going to seem too esoteric, right? Whereas today, um, everybody is engaging with technology all the time, including like soccer moms have blogs and stuff like that. Right. So the idea that it's some kind of like elite cowboy hackers, like in the 80s or something like that, like like clearly the more technology started to be like, you know, devices that are driving us and ordering our pizzas and reading our kids' bedtime stories and all the rest. Like, you're clearly going to have a wider set of people wanting to um, engage in storytelling practices. And then for someone like me, who sort of, you know, um, was a, um, you know, young teen through the 80s and came of age in the 90s, um, the science fiction I did like when I was younger um, marked me out as sort of like geeky and weird. Um, whereas now like the MCU is like this big money. Like, I mean, if you would have told me in like 1985 that comic books would be so cool, they would anchor the biggest franchise in Hollywood history. Like there's no way I would have believed you. Right. 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 Um, and so like the sh those sort of shifts in the place of science and technology in daily life. Um, and then in terms of the global diversity, like obviously with the end of the Cold War and a more globally integrated marketplace dominated by English and American cultural products. And then um, also like those technologies eventually ending up in these different markets um, that once were not part of um, that kind of technological production. All of that contributes to, um, you know, for example, like, like South Korea has a flourishing science fiction tradition. And that, um, I think, has a lot to do with the sort of rapid modernization that um, happened to in Korea. Yeah. Is that, do you think that, in a sense, because uh, that seems like the shared theme to some degree with the original rise of science fiction, uh, you know, dealing with rapid modernization, uh, do you think that that's, that's a natural byproduct of that sort of, when that happens in a culture and... Uh, you reach a certain level of modernization that suddenly like you kind of like the back of the book even suggests that you need to stop and make sense uh, about living through technology, technological change. And so it's like, well, how do you do that? What, what else is equipped to do that? But science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I do think so. And I definitely, I do think we need to make sense of it. Um, sometimes urgently make sense of it because I think things, when you let sort of the market drive what new products and, and innovations are on it, you you sometimes um, end up with things like the social media bubbles or, or things like that. And so, I mean, I think now we see a lot of people wanting to think about automation and the future of work. And this is why the UBI discussion is becoming mainstream because we are trying to think through it. But I don't necessarily think like that kind of 1970s um, future shock kind of idea, like we're so disoriented by how fast things are changing. I don't necessarily think that because um, for as long as people my age have been conscious, technology is changing every year. Like I can remember 
you know, like Betamax. And I can remember when there used to be a button on Netscape that was like, what's new on the internet and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So um, not that I'm necessarily like, you know, like writing my own code in Linux or anything like that, but I feel like I've been able to like roll with it in terms of mm-hmm. how fast technology is changing. Yeah. Oh, certainly. Yeah. That's, that is for sure. Um, it, it, it is an interesting thing though, because it's like, there is that territory we traverse as people, right? Where we're, we roll with it, but then sometimes we don't pause, uh, I think often enough to acknowledge like, whoa, like, it has changed pretty fast, you know, and, and how yeah. quickly I take for granted my, my mobile device, you know, and, uh, yeah. and it's just integrated as part of me. And every now and then I have these like moments where I stop and I'm like, holy crap, I'm living in science fiction right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is, you really think yeah. about this, like within my lifetime, you know, the, the idea of, you know, even just a single device that would do as much as this little computer does uh, it's pretty wild, you know? Yeah. I know one of the things I'd love to think about, um, cause I, well, while I understand the critique of it, I was also quite like enthralled with the NASA space program. And so like, there is something awe inducing for me in that they've landed people on the moon and brought them back mm-hmm. safely. That's really the crucial part. The landing them, I can maybe see, right, but, right. um, especially when I'm like, like my microwave is probably smarter than the computers they were working with to land people on the moon and bring them back. So the sort of technological feat is, is really extraordinary to me when I think about that. And then, yeah, now like the kind of, we take for granted so much processing power um, to do often very trivial things. Um, Cat videos. Yeah. Gotta gotta have my cat videos lightning fast. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. With uh, where the genre is now, um, what do you think is maybe the most important thing happening today in science fiction? Hmm. So I'm always a little like hesitant to be like the most important thing. So maybe I'll say, um, I think some important things, um, certainly, as I've already said, the um, increasingly diverse voices and perspectives and and the way they're asking us to reimagine genre tropes and to think about. Um, so, for example, there's a lot of really interesting space opera being written right now. Um, I recently read um, Arkady Martin's Texacale, maybe one pronounces it that way, <laughs> series. Um, Memory of Empire is the first book, but, um, you know, it is a space opera adventure, very, I mean, from the 1920s, we've had space operas, but it's really thinking through um, language and um, um, cultural forms embodied in language as a certain kind of power that can be internalized to the detriment of those that are positioned as periphery to the, the colonies. And so, I mean, it is telling the space adventure story, but it's really carefully thinking through um, not simply the sort of um, physical land campaigns of the history of colonialism, but cultural colonialism and what that means um, for how it sort of damages or, or changes, I guess, perhaps is a better term, but certainly damages part of it, people's psyches. So I think, yeah, like like telling this, the stories, but not in the same old way 
and because we've learned to ask new questions about these histories, but also because people with um, different knowledges and experiences are writing the stories. So I think that's a really exciting thing that's going on. I think climate change um, and uh, a writer like Kim Stanley Robinson, who's thinking really like urgently and concretely and um, using everything in his um, considerable arsenal of writing talents to get people to realize the severity of the problem. Um, and, but at the same time to help us think about, like we can't just throw up our hands in despair about the problem either. We have to like think about, well, what can we do to ameliorate it? And moreover, how do we have to start living differently? Because sometimes I think when people think about fixing climate change, they're like, it's like, do a thing so we can keep living as we are, but climate change won't be a problem. <laughs> and like, if we only. Need, yeah, exactly. We need a more capacious imaginary than that. And so I think that's another exciting area of science fiction right now. Yeah, no, that's, that makes sense. Um, and that touches even on, on one of the things that I've often like try to wrap my head around in terms of science fiction is, do you see it? predominantly as pessimistic or optimistic or has that even potentially shifted and changed over time well i mean i think certainly it shifts and changes over time that that we know for example the late 19th century there was a bunch of um kind of classical utopias written by classical i mean the kind of traditional really attempting to model the good society um we also know in the 19th 70s, um, people like Samuel Delaney and Ursula Le Guin were playing with the utopian form um, and enacting it in the way that Tom Moylan calls the critical utopia. So it's not the perfect society, but it's like how to how to imagine a society that can continue to ask questions of itself so that it can be utopia in, in process all the time instead of a kind of fixed and rigid model. Um, certainly, there's a flowering of dystopian fiction um, in the early 1950s in relation to the anxiety about nuclear war. Um, cyberpunk is a very dystopian genre that I think is reacting to the sort of economic stagnation and neoliberal restructuring, among other things. So it does sort of, you know, ebb and flow um, with certain material conditions it's reacting to. But I also think you know, the utopian and dystopian, there are examples of them in a kind of pure form, but mostly there's texts, which I mean, they might start in a dystopian situation, but they're about how people survive that and try to build something better in its place. Or they might start out in what is seems to be a utopia, but then we realize like, oh, but there's this like excluded underclass and they have to disrupt that society. So I think they're much, it's much more, um, the dialectic between the two, utopianism and dystopianism. Mm, makes sense. Yeah. You have a chapter dedicated to the environment and, and uh, climate change um, and economics and financing. Um, and then, you, of course, you conclude with this idea of like living in a science fictional world, which you were kind of talking about a little bit. Um, what do you think... You know, if you like do a little science fiction speculation for yourself, uh, if you were to write the same book 10 or 15 years from now, uh, what do you think uh, you might might be the same? What do you think might be different uh, looking down the road? 
<laughs> That's a tough question. It's going to um, out me as a critic and not a science fiction author. Cause <laughs> can I imagine the future? Probably not. Um, so, I mean, certainly I think the questions around decolonization and race um, are going to remain important. So there is a chapter on that kind of like colonial right. legacies and then how de decolonizing writers are remaking the genre. Um, and especially now that there's a much more um, widespread recognition that there needs to be a reckoning, a reckoning around racial justice and that racial, economic, and environmental justice are intertwined and, and need to be jointly addressed. So, um, you know, ideally in 10 years, I would like that to be an even more substantial part of the book because we've made considerable progress around those issues. And so there was more of that story to tell. So that would be my, my utopian speculation, I guess. Um, there, there is a chapter in there on like synthetic biology and biotechnology and pharmacy um, because mm -hmm. those are um, things I've done a lot of research on and I find particularly interesting. But I also feel like maybe that would fade away a little more because I feel if we were rethinking technologies in terms of sustainability and restructuring economics in terms of steady state instead of growth, that that might be um, less an urgent area of research because we'd be um, thinking of different kinds of ways to interact with um, um, other species and life forms than engineering them through biotechnology. So maybe that chapter could be de-emphasized or, or conversely, I mean, my dystopian imaginaries, maybe we need a chapter on um, military technologies and walls and borders um, and that, you know, the coming... Uh, well, they're, they're already existing, but sure to increase number of people being displaced by war and climate change um, and how nation states might react to that in ungenerous ways might mean there need to be a whole chapter in there on like, you know, walls, borders, surveillance technologies, drones, things like that. That would be, you know, my dystopian prediction for what might be really hot in science fiction in 10 years. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just as a kind of a final thought, uh, is there something like, what is it about science fiction that you really wish that the average non-science fiction reader or viewer grasped or understood or appreciated? Oh, so many things. So many things. But thank you for asking that question. So, I mean, I think the crucial thing, and this is like what I hope I've conveyed in the book, is that, um, well, it is a storytelling practice um, and, and does seek to write stories that people enjoy reading, that it is a serious mode of thought for thinking about the future and especially um, the way science and technology and how they're implemented in our social structures are producing distinctive kinds of futures. And so it's not that sort of people are doing research on climate change and then like by accident, some science fiction writer happens to write something about climate change, but science fiction writers do a lot of research about what is the cutting edge of research right now 
and they think about it as much as anyone in the academy thinks about it. And then instead of writing an article or a book about it, as I might, they write a narrative about it. But it is a form of research and a serious form of research. Yeah, I was uh, just talking uh, with a Tasmanian author just uh, had on the show, B.P. Marshall, uh, wrote a wonderful uh, book called uh, The Last Circus on Earth, which I highly recommend. It's a wonderful book. But that was one of his things that he talked about is like, you know, being a research junkie. Yeah, and just absolutely. like so plugged into the research and how pivotal that was for his imagining of this sort of post climate change, um, not not necessarily dystopian, but certainly dramatically different Europe uh, than we have today. Uh, and and integrating that with uh, some themes of you know, the singularity and uh, human augmentation and things like that. And it's a, it's a fascinating read uh, that I definitely have recommended to people. Uh, but yeah, that, that reminded me of his like, yes, research, research, research. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, the, the a radically different world than we have today. I mean, that's our only hope of having a tomorrow, really. Yeah. And so that too sort of sums up why, why I think science fiction is important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, where can people check out more of your books and just find out more about you? Uh, so, um, I mean, I guess they can find out more about me. The easiest way is my faculty webpage. So it's the media and cultural studies department at the University of California, Riverside. So that has a little blurb about what I've published most recently. Um, um, everything, all my books are on Amazon for people that are interested in them. Um, and then I also run at uh, UC Riverside a program called Speculative Fictions and Cultures of Science. Um, and so you can Google that and you will find also information about some of the like extraordinary research some of my graduate students are doing because there's lots of um, interesting research projects they're doing as well that people might might find interesting to read about. Excellent. That's great. And uh, do you have just as a final thought, uh, do you have any current recommendations, uh, something people should read or, or watch? I mean, it's over now, but I was extremely excited by Mr. Robot when it aired. Um, so I, I don't know if there's anyone that hasn't seen that yet, but I, I would highly recommend that. Um, I, I read last year Sue Burke's um, Semiosis series, and she just published a new book yesterday um, called Immunity Index, which I have yet to read, but since I enjoyed the last series so much, I'm quite excited to read it. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know, Westworld, <laughs> these are like, I'm trying to think, uh, there's so many things I watch, but, but uh, the thing that I watched that really stood out for me, but again, it's old, but I will plug it any chance I get, is Netflix's The OA. I absolutely adore the OA. Um, it's it's strange and unpredictable, and it's about the power of storytelling, and you have to stay with it. Don't expect it to give you all the answers in the first episode or two, but I thought it was like just a beautiful story about exactly the kind of world-transforming power that, that speculation can be. Excellent. Yeah, those are good recommendations. That's awesome. 
Excellent. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much for uh, coming on to Exploring Tomorrow and geeking out with me for a while about uh, science fiction. Uh, really appreciate your insight. And uh, I definitely you know, appreciated the book. And, uh, and as I uh, mentioned uh, before the show, um, you know, I'm reading uh, your one of your other books, uh, Science Fiction, A Guide for the Perplexed, uh, which is quite a lot of fun as well. And as you mentioned, that one's a little more geared towards uh, classroom mm -hmm. uh, setting. Uh, but yeah, I'm always I'm always devouring whatever I can, both about the genre and within the genre itself, as uh, someone who just is in love with the genre. So I appreciate you taking the time to be on the show and chat with us. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, and I really enjoyed chatting as well. And it's really, I mean, it's just so awesome to see that there's enough um, interest in and commitment to um, science fiction and what it can do that that you take time to make this podcast. So, so thank you for all the work you do as well. well thank you very much. And that was my conversation with Cheryl Vent, which was really educational, highly enjoyable. And my thanks again uh, to Cheryl for coming on to the show and chatting with me for a while and uh, really geeking out over this wonderful genre that is science fiction. And once again, I recommend checking out this wonderful book by Cheryl Vent from the MIT Press Essential Knowledge series, simply called Science Fiction. And if, you know, you've ever been curious and just want to better understand why this genre is important and why guys like me even dedicate an entire podcast to this, the genre as a means to build a better world, this is a really great place to turn to. So I highly recommend going to uh, your local bookstore and picking up a copy of Science Fiction by Cheryl Vint. And of course, you can do like I'm doing and check out some of the other books that Cheryl Vint has written as well. And if you'd like to check out some of my books, which I definitely would appreciate, you can do that at michaelwhistler.com. That's M-I-K-E-L-W-I-S-L-E-R.com. Uh, there you can find my two novels, uh, one nonfiction book, and uh, a few short stories uh, that are published uh, that way. You can also support this podcast by subscribing, uh, giving it a review wherever you uh, happen to catch this podcast from. Uh, review. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, comment below. Let me know what you're thinking. Uh, all of that helps uh, this podcast continue to gain traction and uh, helps me know what you're engaging with and what you're enjoying and, and what you would like to see or hear more of. So once again, Thank you to Cheryl Vint for being on the show. Thank you for listening. And please continue to be safe and well out there. Read some good science fiction. Let me know what you're reading or watching, for that matter. And uh, what do you recommend? Certainly hit me up with those. Uh, join the discussion on Discord. That's certainly another uh, way you can be part of this conversation. Uh, the, the link for that is in the episode description. And let us know what you're interested in hearing more of. And uh, tune in next week. I'm going to discuss more science fiction themes. Particularly, I'm going to examine 
the recommendations and thoughts from two of science fiction's giants who have written books about how to write science fiction and uh, talk a little bit about what I've learned from that. So hope you'll join me for that. Be safe and well and continue to ask those big questions. We'll see you soon.